Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks into various paranormal occurrences that happen here in the United States. I'm your host, Michelle, and I am a skeptic by nature, but I really do want to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and really open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I'll present both the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode takes us out to Estes Park, Colorado, and I am going to be covering the famous Stanley Hotel. And of course, I will start with the history of the Stanley Hotel, as it, of course, does pertain to the haunted reports of this story. The Stanley Hotel came into existence because of a man named Freeland Oscar Stanley, and he was most famous for designing and manufacturing steam-powered cars along with his twin brother. So really, the two made their fortune off making photographic plates, which is really a process where you take film negatives, develop them, and then adhere them to glass plates. And this is how he made the money he would need to build the hotel. Now, in 1903, at the age of 54 years old, Freeland Stanley received a dreadful diagnosis of tuberculosis, aka TB, as you will hear me refer it to in the episode. For those unfamiliar with the disease, it is an airborne disease, meaning it's spread through things like coughing or sneezing, and it's a bacteria which mainly affects your lungs, resulting in symptoms such as chest pain, fevers, painful breathing, coughing, and people will even be noted to be coughing up blood and or mucus. And at this time, TB killed a ton of people because there weren't really a lot of treatment options with drugs and things like there are today. And due to the bacteria basically eating your lung tissue and causing your lungs to fill up with fluid and blood, you pretty much die a horribly long, drawn-out death from basically drowning in your own fluid. So it was horrible. And at the time Freeland was diagnosed, the treatment options, again, were pretty limited. People were usually put into large TB wards with poor survival rates, as you can see from the many haunted hospitals, sanitariums, and other places where TB patients were held and cared for. And at this time, the best treatment advice was fresh, dry air, plenty of sunshine, and eating a good diet. So as you can see, again, not the best treatment plan. In an attempt to beat tuberculosis, Freeland and his wife, Flora, left their home in Maine and set out for Colorado, where he could get plenty of his treatment, the fresh air, all that fun stuff. And at the time, Colorado was really put on the map by those with TB traveling to get better. Colorado actually became known as the World Sanatorium because for quite a long period of time, so many tuberculosis patients came here. And at that time also, tuberculosis was actually the leading cause of death in America. So while the medical advice wasn't actually really medically sound in their research and all that, it actually helped. The fresh air decreased the spread of the disease through the bacteria and all that, and the high altitude actually slowed the progression of the disease in the person's lungs. 
and the fresh air actually decreased the spread of the disease as the high altitudes slowed the progression of the advancement of the disease in the person's lungs. At the time that Freeland Stanley arrived in Colorado, he wasn't doing well at all. He had lost so much weight that people referred to him pretty much as a walking skeleton. In March through June of 1903, him and Flora stayed in Denver, but he didn't really notice himself getting any better. And at that time, Estes Park in Colorado was really a favorite place of the doctors to send their more healthy tuberculosis patients as the air quality was a little better because of the higher altitude. So per his doctor's recommendations, Freeland took his wife, Flora, and the two of them settled in Estes Park, Colorado at the end of June of 1903. And there they spent the rest of the summer. They stayed in a rented primitive cabin in the area and actually his health dramatically improved. And Freeland and Flora fell in love with the beauty of the area. They felt like it was why he was starting to recover. And I mean, the mountains are gorgeous. So they decided to return every single year. By the end of that first summer in 1903, Freeland Stanley actually purchased land in Estes Park. And he bought this land from a man named the Earl of Dunraven, who had actually come from Ireland to do a hunting trip. And the Earl of Dunraven was attempting to make the area pretty much his private hunting reserve, but the guy was really, really unliked. He was doing tons of things that people hated, like illegally homesteading their land. He was tricking people out of their land and money. He stole, he hunted the local population of animals such as elk to pretty much extinction. And he did things like fishing with dynamite. He ran businesses such as brothels. So as you can tell, people had reasons not to really like him. After he sold the land to Freeland Stanley, he was eventually forced out of the area by a local rancher and lawyer named Mr. McGregor. By 1904, Freeland Stanley's summer home cottage called Rockside was completed. And I'm not sure that you'd refer to it as a cottage. I mean, it's pretty much a huge, enormous house. It is 5,240 square feet, has four bedrooms, four bathrooms, and it is built for entertaining. There's a modern kitchen, a basement with a billiards room, and they even had a car garage for Stanley steam engine car. The Stanleys wanted this large entertaining space as every summer they would leave Maine and spend their summers in Estes Park in their cottage. After four summers here in the year 1907, Freeland Stanley was officially cured of the disease of tuberculosis. He wanted to, though, continue coming to Estes Park as he really loved the area. And The problem is he wasn't content with the rustic lodging situations and the lack of social scene in the area, as he was accustomed to these nicer things back in Maine. So what he decided to do was build a hotel so his friends and other people could start building a social scene for him. In 1907, he began constructing the Stanley Hotel, and at first he wanted to call it the Dunraven Hotel, but of course... Everybody still hated Dunraven, and the locals actually petitioned against it, 
And when they petitioned against it, they actually put in the petition they wanted to name the hotel after Freeland Stanley as he was so well-liked in the area due to his contributions. So, of course, it was named the Stanley Hotel, and it opened on July 4th of 1909 as really a big lodging for the upper class in Freeland circles. It was also partly a health retreat for those with tuberculosis who were seeking the same treatment options as Freeland Stanley. When it was originally built, the hotel was painted a yellowish color with white trim. The main hotel and concert hall were open in 1909, but the manor at the hotel didn't open until 1910. And this project cost about $500,000 to build the hotel, which is well over $13 million today. The hotel features many areas to provide people with access to the things they needed to recover from tuberculosis, as well as just enjoy the beautiful Estes Park area so they could get fresh air and sun to treat their condition. So what he did is he put in various porches and southern exposure areas for the best sunlight during the day. The main hotel also featured a smoking room, a music room, a billiard room, and a hydraulic elevator because, again, he wanted to entertain people and you needed all of these extra things to do so. Eventually, the property ended up containing 11 structures, including the hotel, the concert hall with a bowling alley on the lower level, there was the carriage house, the manager's cottage, a gatehouse, and the Stanley Manor. So the main hotel was actually only open in the summer and shut down each winter. And this was for a few reasons. Number one, in the winter, TB patients weren't coming. They were mostly in the summer. And it was also due to this area being very difficult to pass in the winter because of weather conditions. Of course, in Colorado, there's tons of snow, blizzards, cold, and all of that. In addition to this, there was no central heat in the hotel, so it would have been freezing for guests or staff. Though in the summer, it wasn't a big deal, as windows could be open to give good airflow. They didn't really need the central air, and in Colorado, it doesn't normally get that hot and cools down a lot at night. Though from the time it was built, the manor was actually fully heated and was open year-round. Originally, the Stanley Hotel was a 48-room hotel, and each room had its own telephone, though each room shared a bathroom with the room next to it. The water came from the nearby Black Canyon Creek, and how Stanley did this is he actually ran a wooden pipe system that supplied the town and the hotel with water. So, of course, that's part of the reason the town really liked Stanley, is before this, they had not had any running water to the town. How people were arriving to the hotel was the closest train station was in Lyons, Colorado. And what Stanley would do is he would send the hotel's fleet of cars to pick them up. And these cars were called mountain wagons and were specifically designed and produced by Stanley's steam-powered car company and were able to carry multiple passengers. It was 33 miles from the train station to the Stanley Hotel and in today's standard, it would take about an hour by car ride. So at this time, the roads aren't like they are today. They weren't paved or easily accessible. There's tons of inclines and declines. So to access the hotel, you would have had to negotiate a steep winding dirt road, and it probably would have taken quite a number of hours to get there. 
The hotel was one of the first hotels west of the Mississippi River to be operated entirely by electricity. And again, Stanley was very innovative, and how he supplied the electricity is he built a power plant called the Falls River Hydro Plant, which was again the first time the town had electricity. So now he's brought them electricity and he's brought them water. He did use overhead power lines, and how he helped to pay for this hydro plant is he sold electricity to the citizens. But he didn't really have a way to measure how much electricity they used, so what he would do is he would sell them light bulbs to cover some of the costs of building the plant. Though, at the end of the day, the plant really lacked enough power to fully run the hotel, and it wasn't always reliable. So what he did is in June of 1911, he installed some auxiliary gas lights throughout the hotel. So if the power wasn't running at full speed, they could still have light throughout the hotel, especially things for like dinner. On June 25th of 1911, the gas pipes had just been filled the previous day. And one of the maids was lighting a lamp with a match in one of the rooms when a gas explosion occurred due to a gas leak and many people were injured. A ton of damage was done to the west end of the hotel, which was about $10,000 at that time, and in today's standards, is $250,000 U.S. You might be wondering why no one detected the gas leak. Well, this was the early 1900s, and natural gas doesn't actually have a smell. The smell is added to the natural gas so that we can detect leaks such as in our home or our businesses, but at this time there was no smell added, so they had no way of knowing that the leak was actually occurring. Stanley, being the upstanding man he was, did pay all of the injured staff's medical bills so they didn't have to worry about that, and no one was killed during the incident. During the next couple years, in 1915, the Rocky Mountain National Park was created. In 1917, Estes Park became incorporated as a town, so there was lots of things going around just as the hotel was opening. And both of these events were actually largely in part due to the Stanley Hotel's presence there, as well as Stanley's involvement in the area. Remember, he was well-liked because of what he did. So he supplied them with the water, he supplied them with the electricity, but that wasn't all. He also reintroduced wildlife such as elk to the area after the Earl of Dunraven hunted them to extinction. He donated land for a local sewage plant. He built a high school and a park. He even established the first bank in the town and helped run it as the president of the bank. He also established things such as golf courses and roads to provide access to everywhere and, of course, more entertainment for his friends. In 1916, the east wing of the main hotel was extended, adding additional guest rooms. So at this point, Stanley didn't want to be the hotel manager anymore. He was losing a ton of money in his hotel management experience. He didn't really know what he was doing. So in 1926, he actually sold the hotel to a private company so that they could manage it for him. Though he must have not done his homework on this one as the company did a really poor job managing it. And the property ended up going into foreclosure just three years later in 1929. Though Freeland had put such an amount of money and love into this hotel and he didn't want it to go into foreclosure. So he ended up buying the property back though, again, then reselling it to a man in Denver named Roe Emery. 
Roe Emery was also in the hotel business, but he also was in the car business. And in 1935, Roe Emery decided that the hotel needed a bit of a facelift. He got rid of the original yellow color, painting the entire hotel white like you will see today. He also replaced the gas fixtures with electricity throughout and updated the elevator to a cable-operated system. In 1939, Stanley's wife, Flora, suffered a major stroke and ended up passing away. And in 1940, after returning to Maine, Stanley actually then died of heart failure at the age of 91, which isn't bad for a man who was on the verge of death when he left for Colorado over 30 years before that. In 1946, the Stanley summer home was turned into a motel that didn't really last very long. It wasn't very popular, so eventually they boarded it up and used it as a storage facility. The hotel then changed owners five times between the years 1946 and in 1974. Then from 1974 till 1995, the hotel was bought and owned by a man named Frank Normali. He took his wife and his four kids to the hotel to restore it and work there, but he got a little more than he bargained for. When he purchased the hotel, it had been neglected for years and left to really just become run down. And per Frank Normali, he arrived in the winter to the main waterline frozen. There was no heat. The paint was peeling. Many of the doors and windows were actually boarded shut. And those windows that weren't boarded shut, over a thousand windows were either cracked or broken. Insulation and wiring was hanging from the ceilings. Most of the rooms no longer had running water. The carpet needed replaced. And the porches were caving in. I mean... It was in horrid condition, and the man he bought it from actually told him that he should just bulldoze it. But of course, he decided to go ahead and get the hotel back up to snuff. And they did have some major setbacks, including the flood of 1976. But in the end, the family was able to restore the hotel, including putting new sprinkler systems in, new plumbing and wiring, a new heating system, on and on and on. He ended up spending millions of dollars to restore the hotel, and he even recovered some of the original Stanley Hotel pieces, including the grand piano that Freeland Stanley had gifted to his wife, Laura. Now, this takes us to a famous year. This is the end of 1973. The hotel was visited by well-renowned author Stephen King and his wife, Tabitha. And this was the same year the new owners took over to renovate the place, so I'm not sure if he came after the major renovations, but I'm assuming not. And at this point, Stephen King had two successful books that he had published, but he was having a bit of a writer's block. So as a referral from a friend, he decided to take his wife and stay at the Stanley Hotel to kind of try and just get away, get some inspiration. He only stayed one night at the Stanley Hotel, but it must have made quite the impression on him. And this following account is per interviews with Stephen King himself, though there are discrepancies between his various tellings depending on which news outlet he's talking to. But the one I'm going to say is the most widely accepted and told version. Stephen King was writing a book called Darkshine, which was set at an abandoned amusement park. But again, remember, he had writer's block. So he had driven from his home in Boulder, Colorado, and came to the Stanley Hotel, which took about an hour by car, so nothing too crazy. They arrived at the end of the season, so the hotel was getting ready to shut down for the season. 
and it was during a major snowstorm, so the hotel was empty except for the king. They checked into their room, the famous room number 217, and then they had dinner in the dining room, though it was a little awkward as every other table in the dining room had the chairs already on the table as, again, they're getting ready to close up. After dinner, King's wife Tabitha went to bed, but King roamed the halls and wanted to just kind of check everything out. After roaming the halls, he had a drink at the bar before heading back to his room. And what he stated as while he was walking down the corridors, he was picturing various things like his three-year-old son running wide-eyed down the halls from something scary or imagining someone had died there in the room in his tub. He even had strange dreams. He said that after that one night at the Stanley Hotel, he had an entire book in his head. And in 1977, that book was published. And as many of you who are especially familiar with the Stanley Hotel, that book published was The Shining. After The Shining came out, the hotel gained the reputation of being haunted. In 1978, a couple named Gary and Kelly Brown were looking to start a family, so they purchased the Stanley's Rockside Cottage, which sat on a four-acre lot, and ended up turning the carriage house into an apartment where the husband's family lived as well. In 1983, the hotel began operating year-round, and this is also the year when a service tunnel was dug under the hotel to connect the basement corridor and the staff entrance, which was quite a feat as they had to dig through a ton of concrete which the hotel sits on. In 1995, Normali sold the property so that he could move back to Ohio to be with his family, and since then, the owners have been the Grand Heritage Hotel Group. Currently, the Stanley Hotel is, of course, still functioning as a hotel and sits on 32 amazingly gorgeous acres. Their guest suites are all updated, but with kind of a historic charm and furnishings to them. They also have some more updated modern places, such as cottages and condo-style lodgings as well on the grounds. The hotel is, of course, luckily now heated but it still doesn't feature any central air conditioning in the main hotel or lodge. And again, you don't really need that most of the year as again, we're in Colorado, not the smothering Florida or anything like that. The main Stanley Hotel has 100 rooms. The lodge has 40 rooms. The Aspire building has 48 and there are 24 condo units. So you have well over 200 rooms to choose from. There are beautiful views of Lake Estes, the Rocky Mountains, Long's Peak, and it's near the entrance to the Rocky Mountain National Park. So tons of outdoor activities and things to see while you're staying at the Stanley Hotel. This has made it widely popular for many events, including weddings and things like that. And as far as hauntings for the hotel, they really lean into it and even advertise their spirited rooms to stay in. Though per the hotel, they book up really quickly. So if you want to stay in one of those spirited rooms, you better kind of look into that well in advance. There is also a spa. There is a whiskey bar, a bed and breakfast, which was originally the Stanley Manor. And there's also a restaurant on site. They do offer normal things like many of your other hotels, like pools and things like that. And offer live shows at the Stanley where you can check out things like concerts, comedy shows, and even an operatic version of The Shining. The hotel currently offers both day and night tours. The day tours are for those more interested in the history of the hotel, including the tales of the owners, Stephen King's book, and other history. 
And this tour takes about an hour and will cost you $24 without a discount. The night tour is for those who want the spooky parts of the history. This is a $28 tour and it takes about an hour and covers the haunted history. But keep in mind, you're not going to be going into the guest rooms as, of course, people have paid to rent these rooms for the night. They don't want you traipsing around with all their stuff in there. The day tour will venture onto the guest floors, but due to being late, the night tour does not go onto the guest floors. In 1977, the hotel was added to the Register of Historic Places. And Stanley Hotel was, of course, the inspiration for Stephen King's 1977 novel, The Shining, which was then made into a movie in 1980 that we all know and love, also titled The Shining. Though The Shining was not actually filmed at the Stanley Hotel. The exterior of the hotel is actually the Timberline Lodge located in Mount Hood, Oregon. And the interior of the hotel is actually mostly shot on a film studio set in England. They based it off the interior of a hotel in California. And the outdoor hedge maze from the movie is also a set at the MGM studio in England as well. In 1994, the hotel was used for a few scenes in the movie Dumb and Dumber. The hotel is called the Danbury Hotel in the movie, and the various scenes you'll see is when you see the two characters pull up in their red Lamborghini, that is the hotel they're pulling up to, and the bar scene and the staircase scene were also filmed here at the Stanley Hotel. A few years later, in 1977, a TV miniseries called The Shining was filmed at the hotel here at the Stanley. And Stephen King himself worked on the project as he was so unhappy with the movie that Jack Nicholson was in. He also made sure it was filmed at the Stanley as this is where it all started. And when I read this, I was actually really surprised. I didn't realize that Stephen King would have hated the shiny movie as I thought it was really, really well done. But he stated that it's really not how he wanted the characters portrayed as in his book, the female lead, the mother, she was actually not so willy-nilly as she is in the movie. She was actually a very strong character, and things like that were different, so he wasn't happy with it. Now, moving away from The Shining, we're going to move on to the story of what's going on with the Rockside Cottage, which was the Stanley's summer home. The Browns were the family who had purchased it and turned the carriage house into a mother-in-law suite kind of thing, and they used the home to raise their children, but you know, as time went on, they wanted to downsize as, you know, it was two people in a house that was over 5,000 square feet. So they tried to sell it in 2011, but the people who wanted to purchase it wanted to turn it into a bed and breakfast, which would lead to, of course, demolishing walls, changing the home from its original state. So the Brown family actually declined to move forward with the sale. They wanted it to go somewhere where the bones of the house could be kept historic and really the legend and history that Mr. Stanley made would stay with the area. On October of 2016, the Stanley Home Foundation was incorporated. And what they are is a nonprofit group who wanted to raise funds to purchase the home, renovate it, and operate it as an education center for the area. But, you know, they had to raise quite a bit of money, so it took some time. It took actually well over three years. They weren't actually able to purchase the property till February of 2020. At that point, the foundation had raised enough funds to purchase the home from the Browns for $1.95 million. 
and they've done a lot of restoration work on the house. And what they do is they provide historical information. The foundation raised enough funds to purchase the home from the Browns for $1.95 million. And they've done quite a bit of restoration work to get it ready. And it is now open for touring and provides quite a bit of historical information. You can tour both the home and the carriage house, which has been converted into a garage. And you can see some of Stanley's steam cars there. It's not too shabby as it's only $12 for adults to tour the place. And now, as we know, the hotel is known for being extremely haunted and has been visited by many paranormal investigators featured on many shows such as Ghost Hunters and is known as the most haunted hotel. But, of course, every haunted place is the most haunted this, the most haunted that. So you kind of can decide if you think it is the most haunted hotel or not. And without further ado, we are going to get into the haunted reports of the Stanley Hotel. What I'm going to do to go through these haunted reports, as there are a ton of them, is I'm going to be going by person or spirit said to be haunting and location. Which brings us to our first report, and that would of course be Mr. Freeland Stanley himself. What is known with Freeland Stanley is he will be seen as an apparition and he likes to frequent his favorite spots such as the billiard room, the lobby, the garage, and his bar. And all of these I can see except the bar as Freeland Stanley did not drink. He was really a teetotaler. So I could see him wanting to hang out in the billiards room and the lobby, even his garage as he liked to hang out there and kind of tinker with things. But as far as the bar, I'm not sure about that unless he wanted to entertain his guests. Now we're going to move on to room 217. In 1911, this room was actually larger and was called the presidential suite and was used for famous guests, including previous presidents. It was an L-shaped room, and it is said that this is the room that was basically destroyed in the 1911 gas explosion. It's now been turned into two rooms, which is room 215 and 217, as of the mid-2000s. This is the most requested suite of the hotel and is called the King Suite. So, of course, not after Elvis, but of Stephen King. In King's book, The Shining, this is actually the room number that Danny Torrance is said to avoid. In the movie, the room is 237, as the hotel in Oregon that the outside of the Shining Hotel was pictured as, they didn't want them to use a room number that they had, so they made them change it to room 237 versus room 217. Why they did this is they thought that being associated with this haunting would affect their revenue and customers, and boy, were they wrong. King is said to have seen the ghost of a young boy in room 217. And Jim Carrey is also a famous name associated with this room, as remember, he had filmed the Dumb and Dumber movie here. He was so spooked by the hotel, it is said that he ran from the room in the middle of the night in just his underwear. He never reported what he saw or any of that, and it hasn't been confirmed by anywhere I could read by Jim Carrey, so I'm not sure if this is a legend or not. I, of course, tried to reach out to Jim Carrey quite a number of months ago, and unsurprisingly, I did not hear back. In this room, lights will turn on and off on their own. People will see an apparition walking through the wall where a door used to be. 
And if you stay in this room, your bags will actually be packed or your room straight, which is odd because it's not something that happens, you know, if you're gone for hours on end. It could be you just walk out of the room to get ice for two minutes and you come back. All your stuff is packed. Your bed is made. Everything looks perfect. Something that nobody can really explain. And it's also reported that the spirit that haunts this room does not like unmarried couples. The unmarried couples report feeling unwelcome, and when they're in bed, they feel a cold presence between them. And in the morning, sometimes the man's things will be packed by the door, like saying, get out, you're not married, you shouldn't be laying in bed with this woman, or whoever you may be laying in bed with. Now, one of the spirits that this could be is it's said to be the spirit of the woman who was injured during the gas explosion. And it was kind of difficult to look into this as her name changes in many accounts, even the newspaper accounts from that time. Her name has been said to be Elizabeth Wilson, Mrs. Smith, Elizabeth Lambert from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Lizzie Leitenberger. So not a lot of commonalities in all of those names. But for the most part, all of them agreed that there was a maid woman injured in the explosion. Some reports state that she died in the gas explosion, the newspaper reports confirm that no one was killed. They do say that the maid lighting the gas lamp survived with two broken ankles and superficial injuries, though some did make it more extravagant, stating she was thrown from the second floor window, but she was actually caught between the floor hanging over the dining room. After the maid recovered from her injuries, she was made the head chambermaid and reportedly worked here until she died. There are, of course, various reports with this as well. Some state that she worked at the hotel till she died. Some reported that she lived as old as 90. Some state that she died in her own home in the 50s. And others state that she died at the hotel. So again, newspapers from that time vary in what happened. Some have multiple maids involved, multiple explosions. Some say there was a fire. So we can't really rely on even the newspaper accounts for this. So what I did is I looked into ancestry records and a search of the graves in Estes Park, Colorado. Now, I couldn't find a grave of a woman in Estes Park who would fit the time frame and age of this woman from when it would have happened in the early 1900s. So this could be for a few reasons. Either after working here, she might have moved away and continued her life, or possibly she did die at the hotel and her family decided to bury her elsewhere, wherever she might have been from. I mean, I don't know as I can't even figure out what her name would have been. But either way, I'm not sure she'd want to spend eternity where she worked. I mean, I know I wouldn't, but again, maybe she didn't have that choice and her spirit got trapped here somehow. And this could also be a residual haunting, a replay. If she was always cleaning up this room in her life, maybe she can't help but do it in the afterlife. Now we're going to move on to room 302, where a male ghost is seen walking in the room, and sometimes pictures will even fly off the wall. There was one incident where a small table in the room is seen levitating, but this is on the popular ghost hunting show, and you know, you can't really see everything from every angle, so I'm not sure kind of how accurate that one is. And as far as the fourth floor, before it was complete, it was actually a large open attic area. And this is where female employees, nannies, and children would stay during the day. 
The floor now does have guest rooms, though guests now report hearing children running around, laughing, playing, giggling, and all of that. And they will actually even see apparitions of children playing. They'll hear children crying or whispering, and even whispering from the closets, which is kind of creepy. Children report that a young boy actually wakes them up in the night and tries to get them to play with him. On the fourth floor, workers do report being touched, hearing voices, and feeling ill while on the fourth floor. Though looking at records, it doesn't have any indication that any children have died here, and people state that possibly the children are stuck here as they had so much fun living here in the attic during the day that this is where they want to spend their eternity. But this is a hotel. They were here for a short period of time, probably, or maybe for a summer when their parent was recovering from TB, maybe things like that. But I can't imagine that they would want to spend their afterlife stuck in a hotel in an attic. But that's just me. I have a short blurb on room 413 as there is a man who appears in the corner of a room in an old-fashioned suit. In room 418, there are reports of imprints on the bed when no one has been in the room, and also strange noises will emanate from the room. There will be the sounds of children playing in the hall at night, even when no kids have been booked there. Hangers in the closet will be heard and seen moving on their own, and some people have even reported the blankets on their bed being ripped off in the middle of the night. Creepy, 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 creepy. That's probably one of the worst things that I can think of happening to me in the hotel room. I mean, other than being like strangled by a ghost or something, I mean, I would flip out. So another creepy one is you will sometimes feel a child hugging you or holding your hand, which... I'm not sure how you can tell if it's a child ghost hugging or holding your hand. Maybe it could be a small woman, or how do you know it's somebody small hugging you at all? I don't know. And also, there is apparently a little boy who turns the TV up really loud and flickers the lights, though I'm not sure I didn't see any claims of an apparition, so I'm not sure how they know it's a little boy. Which now keeps us on the fourth floor, going to room 407. And it is said in this room there is a male ghost who is seen in the room and he likes to hang out in the corner of the room near the bathroom and sometimes even hangs out in the closet. This spirit is said to be the spirit of the Earl of Dunraven. And in the closet, women will feel their hair played with, an arm running up and down their body, their shoulders, waist, whatever it may be. And it's rumored that the Earl of Dunraven used to hide in the closets when the nannies lived up here where he could watch them, which is creepy and disgusting. But again, he was reported to run brothels and do lots of unsavory things. Men also report feeling unwelcome in the room and say they even feel like someone was pressing them into the bed. The lights in this room also flicker on and off on their own, and the ghost will even respond to requests to leave the light on. Like people will say, hey, can you just please leave my bathroom light on? And then it just stops doing anything. Jewelry will also disappear, but is usually found, and he was a thief in life, so why not? Ghost hunters did an investigation here and caught the closet door opening and closing on its own. I did watch the video. I will post it online, but it's a really small motion that looks like it could be due to the heat or air conditioning kind of kicking on and off. It's not like a wide open and then shutting. 
And there was also a glass on the side table that exploded on camera, though it actually wasn't caught on camera. You just hear the sound of the exploding glass and then kind of the remnants of what happened. So I don't know that you can claim it actually exploded without catching it on film. The hotel is built on land previously owned by the Earl of Dunraven, though he had eight to 15,000 acres. He was from Ireland and only came here on extended hunting trips, and the last time he was in Estes Park was in 1882, and he had sold off much of his property and eventually had sold this portion of the land to Freeland Stanley. He died in Ireland in 1926. The hotel wasn't built till over 20 years after he left the United States, so he was never at this hotel. I'm not sure why he would haunt it. He was never in the closets there or anything like that. There are a few reports of a friendly ghost in this room as well. And things like if you kick off your blankets in the middle of the night, you'll be tucked back in. And you can sometimes feel the ghost sitting on the edge of your bed kind of comforting you, which I'm much better with this ghost tucking me in than the ghost ripping the blankets off of my bed. So just putting that out there. And we are still on the fourth floor as this is a very, very prominent haunted floor. And we're going to room 428. In this room, you will hear footsteps and people running around upstairs. You'll hear furniture being moved around upstairs. But the creepy thing is, this is the top floor. There is no attic or anything above this other than the roof. There's also a friendly cowboy who appears at the end of the bed. And he usually likes to appear to women and sometimes gives them a friendly kiss on the forehead to say goodnight. There are no cowboys that reportedly died here, but it is believed to be the spirit of Rocky Mountain Jim Nugent, who was an Estes Park guide who was killed in the area. And a little bit about the story of Jim is he was said to come to the area in the late 1860s. He was a hunter and a trapper, and he lived in a cabin near the entrance to Estes Park. What he did is he provided guided tours for tourists, including up the mountain of Long Peak. There was another guide in the area named Griffith Evans, and he ran a ranch called the Old Estes Ranch. But Griffith and Jim were not friends. They were rival guides in the area and did not get along. And this could be in part due to Griffith thought that Jim was being appropriate with his teenage daughter. In June of 1874, Griffith ended up shooting Jim with a shotgun on his ranch. Griffith claimed he shot Jim in self-defense and was actually acquitted of the crime, though Jim claimed that Griffith just wanted to kill him as he didn't want Jim to keep taking away business from him. Though Jim didn't die on the spot or quickly at all, it was a slow three-month death for him, and he actually died in Fort Collins, Colorado in September of 1874. Newspaper reports from 1922 state that he was taken to Fort Collins and put up in a hotel there and was buried at a cemetery called the Mountain Home Cemetery in Fort Collins, though it's now known as the Grandview Cemetery. And this was all about 30 years before the hotel was built, and his cabin was well over 10 miles away from where the hotel is currently, and this is before cars. He would have been traveling by foot or horseback, not really an area that he was really hanging out in. And the ranch where he was shot was along the Fish Creek and is a number of miles from the Stanley Hotel as well. And where he died in Fort Collins is about 40 miles away. And also, another reason I don't think it could be Jim 
is the cowboy is noted to be sweet and friendly. And Jim, he was not a sweet cowboy. He was a stocky man in his late 30s who was known to be an alcoholic who would go into fits of rage. And he didn't wear a cowboy hat or anything. He usually dressed in a gray wool outfit with a shotgun and a cap. So that is the fourth floor. We're now going to move to the dining room, where it is said that Mr. McGregor is said to haunt the dining room. And he was a local hero who legally drove the Earl of Dunraven out of the country. And the dining room is actually named after Mr. McGregor. I haven't seen any reports of what haunted occurrences are said to happen here or why people think it's him. The only thing that people state is they hear a party going on in here, but when they get there, it's silent and empty. So I don't see any connection to Mr. McGregor or why he'd be in here other than it being named after him. We're going to now move on to the Ice House, which is an outbuilding where before there was refrigeration, the hotel would use this to store ice and other goods that needed to be kept cold. So currently, it's a museum which houses some of Stanley's steamer cars. In here are two separate spirits. One of those is the spirit of a boy named Billy. And Billy is quite shy. He set up dark hair and he appears as a blurry or misty figure in pictures. The second spirit is that of a man with a big bushy beard and white hair, though there's no reports of who these spirits are or where their names came from. It just seems like they kind of wanted to name and Billy's, they could call him something. And these two ghosts really aren't widely reported, and I couldn't find a whole lot of information on them, but I did want to include them in the story. In the lobby, there is a spirit of a young boy who appears lost, and many people will hear him calling for his nanny. This takes us to the concert hall, which we already heard about Friedland Stanley haunting the facilities, but this now brings us to Flora, his wife. She is known to play in the concert hall on the piano at night, though when people get near her, she'll stop playing. And it is thought that this is because she used to have stage fright, as when she had gotten the piano at the Stanley Hotel, she only played one show, as she was too nervous to do it again. Some people did report seeing the piano keys actually moving on their own, and others have even stated they see her apparition sitting on the bench at the piano. In addition to Flora haunting this area, there's a man known as Paul. And Paul was a maintenance guy, kind of jack of all trades for the hotel. And one of his jobs is he was to enforce the 11 o'clock curfew that used to be at the hotel. People would report hearing the words get out late at night. And he worked there from 1995 till 2005. Though one night at work, he was experiencing chest pain. An ambulance came to pick him up, but unfortunately he died en route to the hospital. But what he did is he left his couch in the concert hall basement, and many claim to see a man still sitting on the couch to this day. And the haunted reports of Paul is it said that lights will flicker on and off, he likes to zip and unbuckle shoes, doors will open and close on their own, and construction workers doing the floor at night said that they felt somebody repeatedly nudging them until they left. It's also said that he presents with a musty odor, and on tour groups, he will actually respond to the request to flicker flashlights. Like if you ask him a yes or no question, such as flicker once for yes, flicker twice for no, he will follow through with that. I did search Estes County graves, ancestry records, and death records, as well as newspaper accounts. And no one of the first name Paul died in 2005. 
So maybe the dates are wrong. So I looked up anyone who died in Estes Park in 2005 and the surrounding five years, but no one fit that description either. Now, moving on to Lucy, there are multiple reports of who she is. It's said she's either homeless or a runaway woman who took refuge here. Others say she was a young girl who was found peeking at some of the construction plans for the hotel. And when they caught her, they threw her outside in the cold where she froze to death. But regardless, she is also said to play the flashlight game where she responds to questions and she haunts the concert hall and the basement. There are no reports of a death in the newspaper of a woman named Lucy in the hotel. In fact, I only found one article in the archives showing a death at all. There is also a character in the hotel who is said to haunt here known as the Stinky Man. He is spotted throughout the hotel. Before you see him, you would smell him. And it's not a pleasant odor. So he must not have liked being called the Stinky Man, as it is said now he shows up after a pleasant smelling odor, which is very nice of him, and he is now known as Eddie. Eddie is a relatively new claim of a haunting, but many people claim to feel uncomfortable when he is around, and this was probably especially true when he was stinky. He is known to be a little bit of a ladies' man. He will stroke people's heads, kiss cheeks, things like that, and maybe this could be the Earl of Dunraven or Freeland Stanley. I mean, no one knows who it is. Eddie is just a nickname they gave him. And there's no reports of any apparitions or people seeing him, just the smell. Now, the hotel staircase, actually the main staircase you see at the hotel, it's called the Vortex. And this is because people say it's a tornado of spiritual energy. They think it's actually a portal for all the hotel ghosts. And people on the staircase will report cold spots. They will see a girl actually peeking down the stairs at the guests. Spirits will be seen walking up and down the stairs. And people will report different feelings such as dizziness and nauseous while on the stairways, which this could also be a form of altitude sickness for people who aren't used to the altitude in Colorado. Others report feeling as though someone has walked through them and the Stanleys, Laura and Freeland have actually even been seen hand in hand on the stairs. Then there is the spirit of Billy. This is a spirit that they say is a boy with autism. He is said to roam the grounds and likes to play with people's hair and is especially drawn to those who work with or are familiar with autistic people. Though no one knows who he is or why he's haunting here and I couldn't find any reports of what he looks like or who he is or how people even know he is autistic. I mean, autistic people don't have a specific look to them or anything like that, such as if you had Down syndrome or things like that. So that's the only report I could find on Billy. Now we're going to get away from the human spirits for a minute and go on to the spirits of pets. Dogs and cats are said to haunt the grounds, and there is a pet cemetery on the grounds where the owners and staff actually buried their pets over the years, which of course, many of you might think is another Stephen King thing, but this is well before Pet Cemetery. Many say that it is the Golden Retriever Cassie or a fluffy white cat named Comanche. And what people will hear is clawing at doors, and they will actually have their newspapers delivered to them by the Golden Retriever. Both the Golden Retriever Cassie and the cat Comanche are seen and heard throughout the property. 
And the cemetery is actually still on site, but it was moved from its original location to make way for a wedding pavilion. And maybe this is why the furry ones are coming around, because they're kind of mad they've been disturbed. Now, I'm not sure why people think it's only these pets, as there are numerous pets buried here, and not all of them have the names or, you know, what breed they were. I don't even think that the Cassie states that she is a golden retriever or that Comanche was a fluffy white cat. So this could be another instance of people just naming the pets that they see. Then there is the tunnel that the hotel built to have a connection for the staff. And the staff say the granite and limestone rock draw spirits, causing quite a bit of activity down here. It was again used for staff only to travel between different areas of the hotel. And in this area, people will see a gray cat with white green glowing eyes. I'm not sure what white green glowing eyes are. I know what green glowing eyes are, but regardless, that's what it says. And people say it's not from the cemetery, though I don't know how they would make that assumption. There's also the smell of home-baked goods that linger in the tunnel, and I might have an explanation for that a little later in this episode, which is almost done, I promise you. <laughs> there is also shadow figures, eerie laughter, flickering lights, objects being moved, all sorts of things throughout the hotel. And staff states that when they vacuum, they always malfunction or the plugs come flying out of the wall, which I find very, very hard to believe as it's a huge hotel. If every time you vacuumed, it malfunctioned or the plug came out of the wall, that hotel would be a mess. So let's, let's be real here. The hedge maze that is now in front of the hotel was actually built in 2015 and it replaced the long driveway that was there. And why they did it is it's a throwback to the film. It's really good marketing and nothing is seen or felt here, though people do state that they feel panicked and have trouble breathing, but there's no spirits associated with this. As far as Rockside Cottage, this is again the home where Flora and Stanley stayed. The owners, the Browns, stated that light switches would work backwards randomly and they claimed visits from Freeland Stanley in the front of the carriage house. But those are the only reports I could find that were claimed. There are no other reports. And this is where the couple spent, I mean, many, many years summering here. They lived here. I'm just surprised that there's no other reports of spirits. The Stanley Hotel was also used as, remember, a TB retreat. So I imagine some people did die here from tuberculosis. And tuberculosis also did affect children, so maybe this could be the reason that you hear some of the children running, playing, giggling, things like that. And Freeland Stanley, remember he passed away in the state of Maine, and his wife Flora, she passed away on July 25th of 1939 after suffering from a stroke. And she did die in their summer home at Rockside Cottage in Estes Park. Both of them are buried at the family plot in Maine at Riverside Cemetery, though they may not be buried here. They did love the hotel and spent every summer here for over 30 years. So why wouldn't they want to stay here even after death? Then there's A.C. Burkett. He was the chef on site for many years, and maybe he is the reason that you smell the baked goods in the tunnel. In late August of 1937, he was working when all of a sudden he dropped dead. And it was found later on that he had suffered heart trouble for quite some time, and his death was attributed to a heart attack. 
though there are no reports of hauntings in the kitchen, but again, he may be the reason why you smell those delicious things in the tunnel. Other things to note that up until current management, the hotel never really turned a profit. The hotel owners have really focused on the haunted aspect, including the tie to Stephen King's book. And they go so far as to make sure the movie and the miniseries are playing on a loop on the television hotel channel at all times. They did just add the hedge maze in 2015. They hired a full-time paranormal investigator and paranormal tour guides and also have a ton of ghost tours. And it's a huge moneymaker, so why wouldn't the hotel play on it? I mean, you'd be dumb not to. And booking a spirited room will run you about $500 a night, while if you book a regular room, it's about $350 a night. And other hotels in the close vicinity run about $100 to $200 a night, so Haunted really does pay right now. There are many ghost hunter shows and YouTubers who have investigated here, and I really didn't see anything that could be explained away. I will include one YouTube clip from something I saw showing the flashlight game where they turn on and off the flashlights in the basement and concert hall talking to Lucy or maybe Paul, so you should definitely check that out. Um, There's also a picture that I'm going to post on Instagram, Facebook, and all of that that shows possibly a ghostly figure in one of the upstairs windows, and you can kind of decide what you think about that as well. But regardless, that is the episode on the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, and I would love to hear your thoughts on whether you think it is haunted or not. And I'd also love to hear your feedback and episode suggestions. So make sure you tune in every Wednesday wherever you tune in, and don't forget to leave a five-star review and follow this podcast. You can follow on social media for more information on each episode with pictures, links, and much more. You can follow on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, or you can always shoot an email over to paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all next Wednesday.